Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. It is a very unseasonably warm day today. You know, I, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's funny. I joke all the time that the air hurts my face when I step outside. In fact, it was really surprising to some people over in, on the other side of the pond that, you know, we live at negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. By the way, fun fact, negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 40 degrees Celsius, they're about the same. So the crossover there, it's equally atrocious no matter what scale you're using. But <laughs> yeah, no, it's not as bad as good. Good news, Steve. Our board is back. And so calls are working. Mumble room is working. You're working. I'm working. Sounds are working. Everything's working, Steve. That's fantastic news. Yeah. That's about as excited as Steve gets, by the way. Your calls are entertained at at uh, 855-450. Noah, that's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Let's do some feedback. Our first email comes in from Klaus. Klaus writes in and says, someone told me you might be a Mars operator. And if so, I'd be interested in knowing if you've gotten the Mars messaging to software with MSDMT on a Linux machine. So here's the thing, Klaus. I am a ham radio operator. I love all things Linux. I combine Linux and ham radio all the time. Never use Mars. So uh, I am aware of it. I was able to do a little bit of research and dig into it a little bit more. But there are two ways that we can answer questions on this program. One is you write in, you ask, and Steve or I give you an answer. If we don't have the answer, we read the question anyway, and here's why. Oftentimes, there will be some keyboard warrior out there right now who is knows more about Mars than the people who made it, and th- that guy or that woman is writing in to answer your question, and we'll feature it on a future show. So, listen in the future and see if you get an answer to your question. Also, your questions are entertained live at asknoahshow.com. You can send those throughout the week, or you can drop them in the chat room at geeklab.ninja, colon, geeklab, linuxdelta.com. Our second email comes in from Glenn. Glenn writes in and says, Hi guys, in episode 361, William had an issue viewing his Hike Vision camera and not able to view the stream with anything other than Internet Explorer. In Chrome, there's an extension called IE Tab. This will open up a tab inside the browser to simulate to simulate an Internet Explorer should you want to view the stream from a Hike Vision camera. And then he gives a link to the extension. Steve, have you ever played with this sorcery? I haven't. There is a there is the same thing open in IE for um, for Firefox as well, but I've really never needed this. So two bit in the chat room again. That's Geek Lab Cole, Linux Delta dot com says Edge also has an IE mode built in. If I recall right, back to that email, I believe he was aware of the IE tab, and it either wasn't working or it wasn't a route he wanted to go down. So I throw that out there all to say I. T- Correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, but if we're talking about an approach to fix a problem here, 
isn't trying to emulate Internet Explorer, like, so now we've accepted that Internet Explorer is dead and that the, the actual tool for the job no longer really exists and is no longer being maintained. So our answer to drag this 10 to 15-year-old technology kicking and screaming into 2023 is to try to emulate the technology. I still like our original answer to him, that is, send the stream out as RTMP or RTSP and just go pull it into something else, something modern, and then do something with it. I still feel like that's a better route than trying to emulate this Internet Explorer business. Yeah, unless there's no other option. I, I, if I recall correctly, the, the mode within uh, Edge was not being detected correctly by the software he was trying to use to uh, interact with. Okay. I, I believe that's what the original, uh, the original person who wrote in was saying, but uh, I'd have to go back and check the show notes. So all the information is there for you, person who is still addicted to Internet Explorer for, or tied to it, I should say, for legacy reasons. So you can check those out. I would encourage, yet again, pull that into something more modern. And, and also, the more experience I have with Frigate, the, 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 the more excited I get about that project. The one thing I think they're lacking, and it's funny, I, I say this to people who don't work with, with lots of cameras, and then they look at me like I have three eyes, like this isn't valid criticism for some reason. But if you can only limit into a 24-hour period, that's fine if you have like five cameras or 10 cameras, and there's motion like on three of them every once in a while, 24 hours is fine. But when you start getting into like, I don't know, 75, 100, 150 cameras, and each one of those cameras has motion two to three times a minute, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, getting all the clips within 24 hours would be atrocious. So there is some, there, there's some work that needs to be had to use it more than kind of like a basic off the ground home solution. But I love that open source, good looking, reasonable open source software is starting to make its way into the IP camera space. I think that's fantastic. Our third email comes in from ST. ST writes in and says, hello, fellas. I have some system admin questions for you if you've got the time. We do have the time. We set it to time every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us or send in at live at asknoahshow.com. He says, I've got my bash history set to TAC1 because I want to capture everything. But when I spawn a ton of shells, I'm losing a lot of my history. Is there a way to save every shell write their history into the same file? I don't care about perfect order. I just want everything to be somewhere in the history file. I assume that's something I need to add to my .bashrc file. So I'm gonna, he, he sends in three different questions. I'm going to take them one by one. So Steve, starting there, this is something you've dealt with at work from time to time. Yeah, I, I know some people that have tried to solve this in various ways, uh, some more complicated than others, such as, uh, while it eludes me the exact name of the program, there is a program out there that runs sort of like a daemon, and it will collect your bash history and kind of, merge it all together and then send it back to the shells that you want it at so that you can kind of have a unified history. And uh, talking with Atypical this afternoon, uh, he was he brought up the way that I have seen it solved in the past. And so uh, Atypical has outlined some of that in the show notes for you, but it essentially uh, involves using some of the built-in bash tools to I suppose append to the history, the history file on the fly. There's other more elaborate ways that you have the ability to tie machines to where they can essentially, 
how did you describe it? Using it's almost like our syslog, but for bash history. Yeah, like I said, I it, the name of the program kind of escapes me, but essentially you send the bash history off of the shell, um, kind of as a way to ensure that you have your history. Because for some people, especially when you're doing development, uh, that history can be really important. And if you happen to have to migrate a VM or something like that where it doesn't have that history, it can be a little bit of a stopper for you. Absolutely. The, you know, the other side of it, I would say, is when you're learning or when you're exploring technology, bash history can be your friend because there's so many times that I'll be learning something new and I'll be playing with something and I'll finally get it to work and I'll be like, hooray, praise God, I got it to work. How did I do that? And I have no earthly idea. And so, but being able to go back to the bash history and, and, and grab through it and say, oh, right, that's right. I changed that. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, right. And I added that. And then, oh, that's the part that didn't work. Oh, that's the one that did. And you can kind of piece yourself back through. And I guess the only other thing I'd add to that is if that's you, when you get to the end, go do it again from the start while it's still fresh in your head. Because if you can't figure it out then, you're not going to figure it out six months from now uh, with your bash file going back thinking, ah, how did I do that? Uh, you just don't hold a point, candle. His second question, he says, I'm looking for a native Linux solution to Veracrypt. I found various po posts online, but they all seem to contradict each other and the best way to do it. I'd like to make a single 16 gigabyte file that I can store files, documents, tax stuff, family stuff, etc. But when it's unmounted, my laptop ever gets lost or stolen, you wouldn't be able to see that I have those files on my computer. My company requires whole disk encryption, but that's not going to help if the laptop's stolen while it's on or hibernating. Do you guys have a guide online that you recommend I, f I follow? So, Steve, do you do anything like this or largely you just rely on whole disk encryption? No, I don't do anything like this. Aside from uh, standard GPG for individual files or tarballs I, and the full disk encryption, I don't have any need for this. So I, I have done this a number of different ways. So if you want the, you know, the, I don't know how to describe this, but like the simplest, most straightforward way that works on every distro every time, all the time, and has worked for 15 years and will work for years to come, F allocate. So F allocate literally just allocates a certain amount of space on the disk and you, you name it into a file. So for example, you could do F allocate tac L 16 G for 16 gigs and then hidden dot IMG. And it will create a quote unquote image file, or you could, you, know, you really can call it whatever you want, but that has 16 gigabytes worth of space. From there, you can go into something like the GNOME Disk Utility or GNOME Disks, and you can attach that file. And from there, it's going to be just like you plugged in a flash drive. So you can create, you know, extended for, you can create a Lux partition. Lux would be the native encryption tool built into most Linux distributions. And you can set up Lux on top of that. You can set up ext4, name it my secret files, drop all your stuff in there. Once you unmount that, the key is no longer going to be in memory. And if somebody comes upon that file, it's just going to be a block of garbledygook. There's nothing they can, there's nothing useful they can do with that file. And if you want to take it one step further, name it like my great video dot you know mp4 or something, and then it'll just look like a big 16 gigabyte mp4 file except it won't because it's a bunch of garbledygook data and so it won't open or play or do anything like that if you're looking for a more i don't know less hacky solution i guess is about for lack of a better way to phrase that you might check out kde vaults so kde vaults is a tool built into kde shocking and what it allows you to do is create little containers of 
encrypted storage. So by default, you can use a number of different backends for KDE vaults. By default, it uses the CryFS backend, but you can also, uh, upon creating the vault or, you know, through the vault creation process, you have the option of changing that. And your other options are IncFS or GoCryptFS. And so you can do some research on which one of those might be most appropriate for you. Again, personally, I like the thing that I can pick up and drop into any distro ever, any disk utility ever has the ability to attach disk images. And it's just a very simple, easy way to accomplish that. And again, somebody coming upon it isn't going to notice anything. Now, if you're looking for the more advanced features like the like the hidden partition thing where it can mount two different part, two different encrypted partitions and one has your real data and one has some fake grabby data that, you know, then maybe you just continue to use Veracrypt, which works fine on Linux. But I'm, I'm a big fan of Lux. I'm a big fan of native tools and I'm a big fan of things that will just work. I don't have to install anything or change anything. And all of these mostly get you there, except KDE Vault, you're going to require a little bit of extra stuff to uh, to be there. His last question, he says, related to that, I work remotely and the security suite my company uses sometimes scans systems to verify there's nothing bad on our system. I want to be able to block this program from being able to see my family stuff when I do have it mounted. So I wanted to create a whitelist for the directory I mount that stuff into. I then configure my laptop so that to only allow the software I select that can access that path and everything else would be blocked. I was thinking this could be done with SE Linux, but I've also heard about policy D. Are there any better options? What is the best way to whitelist binary access to the directories in a real workstation? So, uh, Steve, have you ever used um, FAP policy D? <laughs> Keep it together, Noah. Keep it together. Uh, no, it sounds like something that SE Linux might be able to do for you, although you might struggle to write your own SE Linux um policy for this mm -hmm. however i would say that there are a bunch of ai tools out there now that you might use to kind of ask questions back and forth to okay that might help you with this so um the disclaimer here is that ai hallucinates all the time mm. and so you can't use it as like hey i'm going to put this thing in and it's going to spit me out a perfect answer sometimes it will mm. uh, sometimes it's complete um, it's completely wrong. So as a, for instance, today I was looking for, so I, I have an alias and I just wanted to be able to watch, like use the watch command with the alias. Mm -hmm. And when you use watch with an alias, it tells you command not found because of the way that like the alias is not a command. Mm -hmm. So you can't watch that. So I asked my local AI multiple different ways. And every time it's just like, well, just leave, like have a, uh, trailing space at the end of your alias and that 100% did not work in any of the systems I tried it in. So it, it might give you a definitive answer that just doesn't work. However, what it, what using these AI is currently good for is getting yourself a jump off point because they might actually provide you with incorrect syntax, but the right type of thing that you need to go investigate for. So that might be something if you decide to go down the SE Linux route, writing SE Linux policies can be quite challenging from the, from the ground up. 
I will link to a uh, to an article that walks you through from uh, Pearson IT that walks you through SE Linux configuration and managing file access with SE Linux. Um, the the thing, at least from from that was for me when I first got started with SE Linux and in Red Hat, was wrapping my head around this whole idea of context aware. Uh, we 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 typically when we talk about permissions, we talk about like this thing and these people, right? And we we don't really talk about context. That and so that took me a while to get my head wrapped around. But we'll have all of that for you in the show notes, and you can check it out, and then write back to us and and, and let us know if it works. Um, all joking aside, what is F app? Policy D. I've never even heard of it. This is. I also um, want to know if it's pronounced F Policy D or FAP Policy D. Well, I assume it's F A Policy D, huh. um, as opposed to FAP the uh, the interesting pronunciation that you came up with. Yeah. Uh, so it's a software framework for uh, controlling applications based on some policy. So it's SE Linux is a mandatory access control. Uh, so it's it's called a Mac, whereas this is a software framework, which is not the same thing. They they may pre- perform similar functions, mm. but they are not the same. So the idea here is there's a, like FA policy D provides like a, a layer of trust, mm-hmm. and so an app when an application is is trusted. Um, it's able to have it's it's able to be treated normally. So, for example, anything that gets any application you install through the package manager. Now, I'm speaking about RHEL because that's the only where the only place that I've ever looked at this. Um, if you install via DNF or YUM, if your older systems support YUM still, what happens is um, if you've got FA Policy D installed and configured by default it's going to trust the stuff that comes out of the the uh, package manager because the assumption is you're not adding additional packages to like the package manager like you're not doing any kind of um uh third party stuff because mm-hmm. it should all be signed and st- stuff like that sleuth in uh, the interactive mumble room you can join us mumble.mindrip1.com joins us welcome in sleuth Hello. Oh, helps if I push the button. There you go. Hi. Ah. Hello. Welcome in. So to add on to the last question, if that tool's running as root, there's not really much you can do. I'm assuming it's running as root because it's a scanning tool. But if it's not running as root, then you can use things like SE Linux and so on. If it is running as root, then... As far as I'm aware, it can still get around SE Linux and so on. So keep that in mind that's, as you're that's not necessarily true. It depends on how it depends on how your system's been set up. So like mandatory access control impacts root as well. And all you have to do is start and stop a service as root and watch how SE Linux will block you. So um, it it depends. Your answer is not wrong, but it's also not right either. So you can install something as root that that still can't access all the things. So I'll give you a good for instance. Back in the back in the early days, Docker was installed and ran as root, but SE Linux confines Docker one hundred percent. There's been a several um, CVEs 
that were very large impacts to Docker that did not impact RHEL workloads because SE Linux can confine and does confine Docker, which runs as root. Hmm. Fascinating. We all yeah, and not saying that it's going to do this, but it could, it, it could like disable SE Linux while it runs. That's if it's running as root, it's possible that it could do that. Yes, absolutely. Unlike if it's got root permissions, um, there. There's a lot of things that could go wrong with that. <laughs> uh, not to not to split hairs, and I, I think we probably beat this to death. But um, the only other thing I'd add there is to if you want to be so we can't really disable SE Linux without rebooting, right? It, it, it happens at kernel time, um, loading into the kernel. Or, so the best you could do is switch it to permissive and not block things. But SE Linux would still be running, still be flagging all the things, right? Yes, that's correct. Let's do the news. Find out what's new. JT out of the Linux Newswire Newsroom. The Linux Newswire Newsroom. This is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of November 12th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. The free and open source 3D creation suite Blender has released version 4.0 this week. OBS Studio 30.0 has been released. The SteamOS-like Linux package Bazite 2.0 is out this week for Steam Deck and Desktop. Fedora 39 has been released. Alma Linux 9.3 is out as a free RHEL alternative. And Microsoft issues a big update to their CBL Mariner Linux distro. CIQ announces Rocky Linux solutions for CentOS migration on Google Cloud. And Amazon is reportedly working on its own Linux-based OS to replace Android on its Fire TVs, smart displays, and other non-tablet devices. In security news, the App Defense Alliance, an initiative set up by Google back in 2019 to combat malicious Android apps infiltrating the Play Store, has joined the Joint Development Foundation, a Linux Foundation project focused on helping organizations working on technical specifications, standards, and related efforts. Meta and Microsoft are joining as well. And cryptographic keys protecting SSH connections have been stolen in a new attack. Also, a highly invasive malware targeting software developers is once again circulating in Trojanized code libraries, with the latest ones downloaded thousands of times in the past eight months, researchers from the security firm Checkmarks have claimed. The most recent one was released last month under the name PYOBF Good. Like the seven packages that preceded it, PYOBF Good posed as a legitimate obfuscation tool that developers could use to deter reverse engineering and tampering with their code. Once executed, it installed a payload giving the attacker almost complete control of the developer's machine. Also, Israel's CERT has published an alert warning of BB wiper attacks targeting Linux and Windows. And lastly, in OpenAI news, Finnish-based AI startup Silo AI has unveiled Poro, a new open-source 34 billion parameter language model for Europe. I don't know about you, but I'm always looking for a good keyboard on Android and or lately the more secure and open source versions of Android, uh, like either Lineage OS uh, or Graphene OS. And Atypical brought to my attention this keyboard called the Unexpected Keyboard. So you can learn more at github.com. There's, we'll have a link for you in the show notes, both to the Unexpected Keyboard as well as the link to download the Unexpected Keyboard on F-Droid. But the basic idea is you have a keyboard and you have a character set. So let's say A through Z and 1 through 0. You want to be able to switch between those characters. Oh, and 
uh, you know, the punctuation, right? Exclamation, hashtag, comma, period, whatever. What this keyboard allows you to do is it allows you to have a key that is assigned to maybe, let's say, Q. And it also maybe doubles as the two key, and maybe it also doubles as the, the question mark key. So Q is in the center, so if you just press Q, Q comes up. Maybe perhaps two is in the upper right-hand corner of the key. So if you press on that key and swipe up to the right, it's going to just print a two instead of a Q. And then if you want to use like a question mark and that's down to the right, you press on the key and press down to the right and it will print that mark, which is kind of a play. If you've ever used an iOS device, how they'll have you press and hold and it will use the alternative character. And so you don't have to switch. You don't have to toggle back and forth between different character sets. It's obnoxious. Joining me to discuss it. It is a typical welcome in, sir. Hey, how's it going? That's going great. Yep. So what, what, how did you for, tell me this? How did you come across this? So I actually just recently got a new phone, loaded it up um, with Lineage OS, and went hunting for keyboards and new apps and et cetera. So I literally just went into Afteroid and searched keyboard and played with a bunch of them, found this. And I love this keyboard so much that I'm probably never going to any other keyboard. The big things that it is missing the are for other people is the swipe input or voice input. Mm-hmm. And really, the only thing that I miss is when you're typing and it gives you the suggestions at the top. Um, spell check and all that still works. Um, but that's really the only thing I miss from like your standard Android keyboards. Um, additionally, it has no internet connection. It doesn't have any ads. It's completely private. So yes. there's that too. That's absolutely awesome. So, Steve, I know that you have gone through a number of different Android keyboards. What things have you liked and what things have been, what things have you found to be problematic? So Noah converted me to Graphene OS when I got my my latest phone this year. And I have previously been, for years, a swipe keyboard um, person. There is no real good swipe keyboard for Graphene, and this mm-hmm. has to do with libraries. As far as I understand, um, the libraries are just not available or installed in Graphene OS. You can you can get a couple of keyboards that say they do it, but uh, I'm not out here to nitpick at anybody in particular. But they uh, they tend the the ones that have built their own library have sufficient deficiencies in my estimation, and so. At the end of the day, it's actually caused me to use my phone less because I just can't be bothered to continually peck away at my phone. Um, I suppose I should give a plug here for Beeper because for texting and stuff like that, I just wait for it to show up on the on my desktop in the Beeper <laughs> client to sync, and then I type it out. Just when the world thought Steve couldn't use his phone any less, we found a way to make it slightly more miserable to him. He's like, yeah, you know what? Just, well, I'll just wait till I get back to the computer. Yep, pretty much. So atypical, you, what drew you, so you, you, you came into this, you, you stumbled into, you're looking for new, you're looking for new apps. Why change the keyboard? That seems like kind of a esoteric thing to say, Hey, I've got a preference for what did you like about it? So in the past, a keyboard that I've used quite a bit is the hacker keyboard. Um, it's an old favorite. It's an asteroid. Um, but I was looking for a keyboard that would give me more of a laptop feel Um, all the keyboards I've used in the past, except for the hacker keyboard have always been, I refer to it as Fisher price and frustrating. Um, and the hackers keyboard, as much as I love it, 
it just takes up a lot of room on the screen mm-hmm. and it doesn't and it packs so many keys in that it's hard to hit them with my fingers and stuff i've got big you know sausage fingers and whereas this keyboard it takes up a lot of space but i get a i'm much more accurate typing on this keyboard than i am even the stock keyboard in lineage um and i don't know maybe it's just the way my hands work with the phone but I like I said, I love this keyboard, and I'm probably never going to anything else. <laughs> I, I will tell you that. So there's the only things that I thought left a little bit of room for improvement. So with I'm with Steve, no swipe. What a pain! I hate pecking out letter by letter. In fact, if I do try to peck out letter by letter, it's so inaccurate that oftentimes the message isn't even intelligible by the time I get done with it. But the other side of it is. I don't even really use swipe that much. Now, I remember I did this in front of Steve and his reaction was hilarious, but I use voice to text all the flipping time. Pull out my phone. I read a message. Okay, hit the button. Say what I want to say. Hit send. And that also is not available with the unexpected keyboard. So be aware of those things. So it's funny, Steve, you and I were at, we're, I think it was Southeast Linux Fest, and we're driving around and I pull my phone out and I said, you know, navigate to blah, 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 blah. And I set my phone down and Steve looks and he goes, I have never done that with my phone ever. Like, what? Done what? Navigated? He's like, no, what you just did, picked up and pushed a button and talked to your phone and then it inputted text and then outputted the text and then did the thing. I'm like, really? I do that all the time. That's super helpful. I love being able to talk to my phone. Yeah, but the 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 difference is at least early on, I knew that that was all being recorded and sent away, right? Because the yeah, that's true. from the legacy, I don't know how it is nowadays, but from the legacy, the phones didn't have the process to to be able to do the the speech to text properly. Oh, I'm and sure. So, I'm sure the Googs has a copy of everything I've ever asked it to do, including my frustration when it doesn't get it right. So Steve had an interesting week this week. He went through and did a network migration, also sometimes known as an IP rescheme. And so the idea here is you start with your network and maybe you took the subnet mask that came with your router. Maybe you came up with it on your own. Maybe you were following a tutorial and you had no idea why you were entering those numbers. You just entered them in and then they worked and you thought that's great. Now, all of a sudden you're looking down and you're saying to yourself, self, I'm running out of IP addresses. I don't know what to do. And so you heard maybe last week or the week before when we were talking, addressing some feedback from somebody who said, I need to re-IP my network and I'm having these kinds of problems. Well, why does somebody re-IP their network? Why do they do a network migration? Well, oftentimes it's because they're running out of IP addresses. So Steve, that happened to you this week. And I guess if you can kind of take me back, how did you run out of IP addresses to begin with? And what was kind of your plan and your process going through this? So, I mean, I won't bore you with the details of, of how you grow a very large network. Um, it wasn't IoT related for, I, I had a couple of people ask me if it was IoT. My, anything that's related to home automation or IoT lives on its own VLAN completely separate from this. This is just organic growth of stuff around the house as you kind of insert more kiosks and stuff around the house. So I I had a a regular class C or slash 24, however you'd like to refer to that um, subnet. And I only had about 50 IPs left for the DHCP pool, which for most people is like, well, that that should be not a problem. But the, the level of work that I do and some of the software that I use will cycle through the DHCP leases quite quickly. And you could reduce the amount of timeout for the DHCP lease, but that causes you other consternation down the line with other things that you expect to be 
at a static place like if they change too often. So I was finding myself every morning going into PFSense and nuking any of the DHCP leases which were not currently online so that I could continue on with my day. So got tired of doing that and thought, it's about time. You know, uh, Noah likes to talk about the shoemaker and how his kids have the worst shoes. <laughs> so <laughs> I decided that it was time for me to go and make better shoes for my kids. Um, so I traded this like I would if I was doing this for a client. So I created a, a network migration plan, uh, which included doing things like mapping out your static IPs, because if you are expanding your subnet, as Noah kind of alluded to the last time we had a, someone write in about this, you might end up having problems with things that didn't get rebooted or adjusted, talking to new things on the DHCP because say one will think I'm on a slash 24 and the other one will think I'm on a slash 21 and they won't talk to each other because they don't think they're on the same network. So uh, your DHCP stuff will take care of itself if you you know reboot it or kick everything off the network and make it refresh. But anything that you have statically set won't do that. So you need to make sure that you've mapped out anything that's statically set and decide when you're going to when in your process are you going to make the adjustments to these machines? Um, so the other thing to look out for is as you are mapping this out now, again, you don't have to take this as seriously as I do. However, anyone who has a spouse that you're trying to convince them to use the neat shiny things and allow you to have budget for it, this is production network, just like you had actual users. So, so Steve is saying to- is if you want to stay married, then you need to treat this like your life depends on it. Or if you want them to just continue to allow you to have budget to do what you do. Right, exactly. Yes. <laughs> uh, so you need to think about any kind of hidden gotchas. The, I can't enumerate this for you, but things that might be a hidden gotchas, you set a static route at some point uh, for something and you've forgotten about it because it was years ago or anything like that where um, uh, static DHCP leases might fall under this category as well. Just things that have been humming along that might upend you as you go through. Uh, I guess I should, I'll touch on this here, but we'll talk about the problem section. If you've got software that really doesn't like changing IPs, this would also be a hidden gotcha. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and of course you need to think about your network gear. So if you've got managed switches, if you've got access points that have IPs, uh, obviously your routing equipment itself, all of that sort of stuff. You need to have that stuff lined up and know ahead of time. How do I access this? If I've changed my my IP from a slash 21 or slash 24 to a slash 21, how do I continue to access this thing? Will it work um, or will it bounce me because it thinks I'm not on the same network? Because each one of your managed devices has to have an IP on your network so that you can interact with it. So you need to you need to know ahead of time what you're getting into. And if this sounds like a lot of work, it is, right? This is that's the whole point. If you you could just YOLO this and flip everything and then hope it works. Eventually but, it'll all come back online. Uh, Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Um, as part of this, I made a communication plan and, and I hear a bunch of people who've gone through this rolling their eyes at me. Yes, I hear you rolling your eyes. Uh, however, 
this is it's really 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 important to set expectations for people okay so i started two weeks beforehand hey in two weeks i'm going to be doing this and everything in the house is going to be offline and then a week goes by and i i did it again and then i did it again on the wednesday and then friday night and then saturday morning like this is going to happen and everything is going to break while i do this so be prepared i you know like bring up your web pages because the internet's affected bring up like if you've got confluence pages for recipes or you need to have this stuff you need to be aware that this is not going to work and you have a communication plan and keep in touch like at the two hour mark so i gave myself a four hour window at the two hour mark i gave a status update and again I don't think my wife really cared, but this is just a part of executing as if you were doing this see the, for production. See this, 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 the, the, this is the way this would go in my house, right? Like I would, I would tell my wife that I'm getting, and and I would probably get this question: Is it up yet? I just want to know when it's fixed. And then I would go back to working, and then I would say, "Well, here's another status update. Is it? Does that mean it's fixed? Fixed yet? No, it's not fixed yet. Okay, just tell me know when it's done, and then I, when I can go back to using it. Okay, got it." Yeah. I mean, that's one way to do it. Right. Um, it depends on what, what you're doing. So like home assistant had to come up first. And so the communication involved things like, okay, home assistant's back up. You still can't do blah, 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 but home assistant's back up. Right. Those are the types of updates that I'm sending out. Tiny asks in the chat room, is there a reason you didn't move all the stuff that changes IP addresses into its own VLAN? Yes, because then you still have to you still have issues with routing and stuff like that. That has to happen. So you're you're talking about spinning off a new VLAN, uh, then adjusting your firewall rules. Not only your firewall rules, you have to add trunking. Like if you're going to do a new VLAN, there's a lot that you have to think about. Like you have to think about the trunking routes to your access points from your main router to your core switches and on top of that, uh, you also have to think about the fact that unless you have a way to break this out, like, do you have enough managed ports to break this out? If you don't, what will happen is if you've just got a dumb switch downstream and you've got multiple VLANs on that dumb switch, mm. you can run into problems, mm -hmm. right? In my case, I have one managed core switch and then I've got a bunch of downstream dumb switches. So in order for me to make that work, I would have needed another dumb switch and an extra port, which I don't have on my managed switch in order to facilitate that. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so where do we leave off? I'm just talking about like, you know, we're, we're talking through the steps of what, do, what would I do if this was production for a client? So yes. we talked about making a communication plan and sticking and doing that. You set a time window and you stick to it. This is another thing that's really important, especially for user acceptance, like regardless of, hey, things are working and I've been successful or things are going terrible. You have to know this is my time window. And do I pull the ripcord and bail out and roll back my changes? But they need to have their services up. And your house is kind of a small microchasm of that. But in a production environment, that's absolutely what you have to do. You can't just say, well, I planned for four hours and we're running at six hours and I'm just going to keep going till I shove this through. You have to know what is your rollback plan. Um, and that's part of creating the plan. You have the, this is what I'm going to execute on. This is the time that I'm going to have the go, no go. Do I continue pushing forward or do I roll back? And if I need to roll back, here's what I'm going to do to roll back in a timely manner. You know, if I can add to that a little bit too. So 
identifying what things you can live without and for how long should be a part of that planning process. So probably didn't come up in your house, Steve, but many, many, many times when we're doing something like this at a client, you'll have people and they'll say, we'll ask them, what are your critical paths? What are the things that need to have that you have to have to keep this business working? And a lot of times you'll hear things like uh, access control and phones. If we have those two things, we can get into the building, we can take phone calls, uh, we're good. You know, Jody can live without the internet for a little bit on, on, on her computer. She can use her hotspots. Or whatever, you know, and so you, you start to assess some of those things out. But having, having a, a, ahead of time decided like, hey, if the phones aren't up by this time, this is the time where we're going to say, okay, we're either going to continue the process and we're just going to execute the backup plan to get the phones back up over here in this way, or we're just going to bail the whole thing and we'll, we'll try again tomorrow or next week or whatever the next time window is. But understanding where those pa- those points of failures are before you get to them and being able to head them off, that's that's great advice. It is. And that really is a good segue into unplanned, I think, segue into the next point, hmm. which is know ahead of time what you're going to test and have multiple test cases. So again, we might touch on this if we get time to come back to the problems, but one of the things that I noticed was I was getting different responses from my laptop than I was from my desktop. And that wouldn't that problem would not have surfaced and the solution to said problem would not have been as easy if I wasn't having, I had test cases that I knew I was gonna do. What was I gonna hit? What was I gonna try? From where? How was this gonna map out? And if I didn't have that, it would have been a lot harder to diagnose and fix the problem that I ended up running into, right? Okay. Uh, which which leads into be prepared for any aftermath as, as best as you can. Um, and part of this is we, you, when you're doing a change, you don't want everybody to assign every little blip to that change for the next seven months. But <laughs> changes do cause unanticipated um, problems down the line. And you need to be prepared for the fact that just because everything went smoothly, you probably are not going to have enough test cases to okay literally everything. And so you're likely going to have, if you're doing this in production, you're likely going to have to set aside some time for like the oops moments where, you know, if, if I'm Noah and I'm running my business, I might have to add two or three hours of after support into my thing because something I didn't catch Mm -hmm. and I have to plan for that. Maybe Noah, you can talk on that a little. Yeah. I I mean, typically we'll have, so, you know, largely what we'll do is we will bid out, you know, we, we say, if we guess this is how much time it's going to take, we stick to that. And if we're off because we made a mistake and we just eat the difference in cost, unless it's something we couldn't have foreseen, then we'll come back with the change order and say, Hey, here's, you know, there's no way we could have known that, you know, you had your, I don't know, fire alarm system that was connected to the network. Because when we asked you, you said it was only running over the phones. And so now that we discovered it is, in fact, running through the network, we're going to have to, you know, get some ATAs provisioned and, and get all that put in. And so we'll just we'll submit a change order and say, hey, you know, th- th- this is what it's going to be. And then, like you say, kind of update expectations as you go along. And so that, yeah. You mentioned update expectations. I, I put it in here twice in terms of like making a communication plan, constantly communicating with your users. Mm-hmm. Um, there, now, there is a balance here because if you over communicate in, in a situation where users are jittery. So I absolutely have clients where they literally blame the network for everything. Mm-hmm. 
right? And so, of course, if you're the network team making a network change, you know that you're going to be black and blue over this for the next umpteen weeks or months because everything is going to be your fault for making the change. So sometimes you need to make your judgment as to what constant communication with users means. Like in the case of if you've got a jittery client and or uh, expectations are low already, like a client that already hates their network, over communicating is bad. The more attention you draw to the fact that this thing is happening, it's probably worse for you. And then your communication path needs to be just with stakeholders. And so if you're talking about production, do I alert the users? Do I alert the managers? Like which level of communication should this go out at? And that will depend upon the type of change you're making and the culture and the, the weird um, it's in, uh, eccentricities of each individual place that you might work. And then finally, I made a note of like, don't forget to look at your firewall rules. And so this has nothing to do necessarily with your planning, but uh, your firewall rules, especially looking at the active firewall states will give you a lot of clues as to how well your network change actually went. And did you catch all of the, uh, all of the things? Because your firewall is probably going to start seeing packets. Um, I suspect that the user that wrote in before, I believe his name was John, probably would have seen the firewall rejecting communication between a slash 24 and a slash 21, right? And so that might help you identify hosts that got missed or needing to be rebooted or whatever. So that's kind of the overview of how you plan for a network uh, migration. There's obviously additional steps that, that you might need to take, but that's kind of would give you a good jumping off point. Uh, Tiny in the chat room says, have either of you used monitoring dashboards like Uptime, Kuma, or Grafana to automate the process of communicating which services are available during a migration? No, because that, generally speaking, that's a terrible idea because your alerting is not going to be able to cover enough test cases for you to be confident. So, mm. for example... Um, if you're running internal testing against some service, so I'm running Nextcloud here and I also expose it to the internet. So in order to make sure that when we're roaming, we can always access it without changing the URL, I turned on the NAT reflection, which allows the traffic to hit the external interface, the WAN interface, and then be turned back around. What this means is I don't actually go out over the internet for Nextcloud unless I leave home. If my in, if my monitoring like Grafana or Nagios or whatever is internal, it's going to receive the fact that the NAT reflection is working or it's not working. But that doesn't tell you, for example, that the firewall rule broke allowing outside traffic in. Now, Uptime Kuma would help you with that for sure, but then the question becomes, how much time do you, you take configuring both internal and external monitoring uh, for all of the relative use cases? And maybe it's worth your time. It could be. But generally speaking, it's better. It has been my experience to, to have your plan written down and do those tests manually because you also don't want to communicate before you're ready. Like the, the service might flap as you're making adjustments and you might end up with a case where it fires off and says hey guys this is up except that you were planning to take it back down again 
because you're in the middle of say multiple changes. What kind of problems did you run into as you were going through this, Steve? So briefly, uh, one of the strange things that I noticed was PFSense stopped handing out the default route. Uh, I found by searching the internet that I'm not the only one with this problem. That's that's part of the way that I got around what the fix for it was. Remember how I said I had multiple test cases? Well, the the desktop has got a static IP and everything was checking out. Could hit the internet, everything seemed to be working. But when I would pull up a laptop or a mobile device that was on DHCP, they couldn't get to the internet. But Nextcloud would strangely work. I'll see my previous comments about NAT reflection, um, which was a little bit confusing because you're using the external URL, but yet it still works. Um, so it turned out that it took me only about five or 10 minutes to diagnose the problem. And that was that if you typed route on a static IP, it had a route. The DHCP clients were not getting routes for whatever reason from PFSense. So the solution there was really simple. Just go into PFSense in the DHCP setting and actually put in the IP of PFSense, which I don't know why it was required, but it seems like this happens from time to time for people. Um, related, sort of related to this, I mentioned before that some software doesn't like changing IPs. I ended up having to go through a reinstall fest of some of the enterprise software I use because even though the VMs that they were running on changed IPs, the software either was hard-coded from installation to, to that IP or it just completely bugged out, like trailing the logs and then looking up for a specific software, you see, oh, well, it's not really worth fixing this because it's, it's a lot more of a hassle to try and fix that. What kind of stuff have you run into when you do this? Most of the time, 99% of the time, the problems are things like, hey, you know, we can't get to the blah, blah, blah. Well, where is that? I don't really know. Okay. Well, how's the IP address set? Ah, I don't know. That was John set that up 16 years ago. And we just plugged it in. It's worked ever since. I'm not really sure how that, any of that works. Do you have credentials? Do you have any way to log into it? No, 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 no. So we don't know where the thing is. We don't know what the thing is. We don't know what the IP address of the thing is. We don't know how to log into it. Ah, ah, that's about it. Oh, okay, good, great. I'll get right on fixing that. That kind of stuff uh, tends to come up more often than I would prefer. The other thing that I see, uh, not uncommon, you kind of touched on this. If So are you a assign the IP, static IP addresses from the gateway and then you've got one master source of truth or are you put it on the device and then you've got redundancy so no one thing can take you out? Uh I generally, if I'm setting an IP, a static IP, I set it on the device, part of the automation and the, the creation of the machine. Okay. So I'm a I'm, I'm, I'm mixed bag. So if, if it's anything security or access control related, it, like in my experience, business owners don't like being told, actually it really doesn't matter what the reason is. They just don't want to hear a reason as to why they can't get into their building, period, end of story, all the time. So for access control and for security things, typically those things we will statically set on the device. And that just means that, hey, everything on the network can go away. And as long as there is a physical wiring path between point A and point B and a switch in the middle to switch up the packets and bits, we're good. And, and things will continue to function. And if DHCP and DNS breaks and all the rest of it falls apart and Active Directory takes a, takes a dump, it, it's fine. At least the cameras will still work. At least you can still get into the building. So those things will set on, on device. I have learned one too many times that when you start getting into devices, particularly esoteric devices, 
you come back to them six years later and it's like, oh yeah, how did I set the IP address? Oh yeah, that's right. You had to, you know, just hop on one foot and spin around sideways and hold this button and then scroll till you get to the bottom and then the IP address settings come up on the tiny little OLED, you know, 10 by 10 pixel screen thing. Stuff like that just gets old. So for those sorts of things, I've started to move towards setting them on the router. But I tell you what, more than once, Steve, more than once, We've had everything set up and the router takes a dump or the and or the config file wasn't there or whatever it is and we come back and all of a sudden all the devices just wind up in random places and you got you get to go play you know a network forensic figuring out what thing goes to what thing and what's supposed to be where and that's no fun and so just having things as much as you can set on the device I think is super helpful one of uh, one other thing I was going to ask how did you go about prioritizing your network services? So we talked a little bit about, you know, communicating and making sure people are up and down on, hey, here's what's here's what's going to happen in the order we're going to do it. How did you decide that order to begin with? Well, it's based on level of convenience in the house. So home assistant has to come up. Okay. Uh, it, it has to work. The internet secondarily has to work. Home assistant first, then internet. Those things have to work. Aside from that, um, then it becomes order of most used so while we use plex eh, you know like that's just a that's just an inconvenience but the wife's not having her recipes that's a problem yeah you're so, not eating yeah you rank order things based on what you think is most important what did you learn what did you like what questions do you still have live at ask show Dot com. The music in our ears means we're out of time. I thank you for joining us. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can find the entire show notes, everything we use to make the program, as well as all the stuff that we didn't have time to get to. It's all there at podcast.asknoahshow.com. We're back next week, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. For the latest, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux 7. It's the show at Ask Noah Show. See you next week.